It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Deep into the offseason here at the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, but you can begin to see the 2017 season coming uh, at the uh, other end of the tunnel here. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, again, I'm Pat Coleman. He's Keith McMillan, uh, and there's lots to talk about this month. Uh, something's going on during the offseason, and, of course, some breaking news that hit our website earlier this week. We'll talk about that. Uh, coaches right now are talking about uh, preseason practice, and we will have uh, a conversation with a couple of coaches about that coming up in a little bit. Uh, and also, the uh, Division Three football committee doesn't get to take the entire offseason off, that's for sure. Uh, and they have uh, been having discussions lately about what might be coming up over the course of the 2017 season. Uh, Keith, one of the interesting things that we talked about during the 2016 playoffs was that in that first round of the playoffs, the NCAA sprung for an extra flight right in order to get uh, instead of having the two west coast teams play each other and the two texas teams play each other in the first round they flew them both to texas and uh played for an extra flight in the first round we found out that as it turned out that was basically the only extra flight that the entire bracket uh ended up using the cost did not seem to be that big of a deal the NCAA did not come back and say well we're never going to do that again that sort of thing so it sounds like that was a positive thing that happened in the bracket we knew that but it sounds like it was not viewed negatively which I think was something we were a little concerned about well I think it's it's a win too for uh for the teams that make the postseason especially those on that what we call the islands in Texas and on the west coast just because there are so few teams in those areas, there there are very few matchups that that um, uh, fall within the 500 mile radius for for any of them. So you know when you're Pacific Lutheran and you make the playoffs and you have to play Linfield every time, you know, it gets old. Um, and I thought they did a nice job of that this year. It's something we've been clamoring for for years. And so you know when we complain, when we see something wrong, we should. Uh, you know, tip the hat when we, we see them get it right. And I think over the course of the time we've done this, but particularly the past 10 years, they've done a really nice job fixing the things that seem to be wrong um, in, in the postseason when the, the ways the bracket are constructed. Now we have uh, brackets built as best they can um, around number one seeds. So yep. it still has some ge- geographic element to it, but not a strict geographic element you see the the pod system being used so that um the the matchups aren't necessarily the same matchups and and um to some degree uh regular season rematches are avoided uh at least in in round one sometimes you still see them um in the early rounds uh, but at least they try to give you know they split they did a good nice job this year for example splitting up mount union and john carroll so they didn't have to play each other unless uh unless both teams had had made it uh from the semifinal into salem uh i just think they've they've done a nice job of of um you know fixing the things that uh the, the gripes that we've had over the years and you can add the the extra first round flight to that list talking about uh, salem uh, the site of the stag bowl since Oh, I forgot for a second. Since 1993, there we go. Um, the every few years, of course, that comes up for a formal rebid, and and this is one of the years that that is being considered. Uh, Stag Bowl is securely in Salem through 2017, uh, but uh, for years beyond that, uh, they were accepting bids and looking at bids, uh, and that's something that the NCA Football Committee was looking at over the course 
of the past week or so. Uh, Salem, of course, bid to host once again. Uh, also, we've heard a lot about uh, Canton, Ohio, and their candidacy. Uh, they seem like a very strong contender. A couple of the other ones on the list. Uh, Ohio Wesleyan in Delaware, Ohio, actually bid to host the game in their on-campus stadium. Uh, Selby Field uh, it lists as a... Uh, uh, capacity of 9,100, so that would certainly be something capable of hosting a Stag Bowl, even one that uh, Mountain Union would be playing in. I think they wouldn't have too hard a time putting uh, putting people in the stands. Uh, Ford Field in Detroit, the home of the Detroit Lions, put in a bid to host both the Division II and the Division Three championship game in a doubleheader, and I think Keith and I will talk about that for a second here in a minute. Uh, and also a site in Texas. Uh, there has been a, a site in Texas not always the same one, but sites in Texas have bid regularly over the course of the past several years. Uh, Keith, I want to talk specifically about Canton, Ohio, because people seem to think that's a, a strong contender. And Ford Field, not that I think that's a, a, a strong likelihood that it's going to go there, but just an interesting possibility that the D2 and D3 championship game could be held in a doubleheader at the same site. Well, yeah, we've seen um, major league venues take on back-to-back Division three games in uh, – in, um in Minnesota, and it's been a pretty cool um, tradition. You know, it's it's certainly weird when a stadium that seats tens of thousands of people, you know, draws a few thousand for a D three game, and you get that kind of cavernous yeah. feel. But it, but it also is cool to play on, um, you know, be be on the big time. You know, for for a lack of a better a way to put it, play on the fields that uh, that you that you know the pros play on. Um, I, I think the the target field uh, thing next season with uh, with St. John's and St. Thomas will be the perfect mix because it won't be an empty stadium. They should draw pretty well for that, and I think that would be my um, that would be my main issue with Ford Field. But I, good, good for Ford Field for trying to get in on it. I think they have something that not every place has uh, that that has bid on the Stag Bowl, and that's an actual connection to D three in the area. You know, there's pretty good in that southern part of Michigan. There are you know six D three schools probably within a, a hour or two of Detroit. So uh, and that's not even you know counting going over the border either. So it's driving distance for for a lot of schools. And I think that's one of the the things that the the appeal for Salem and for Canton. Yeah. Um, you know for Salem, it's in an area that that is is you know it's where the ODAC is headquartered, which is the the main uh, football conference in uh, in Virginia. Um, and it, you know, you kind of say, well, you want to have it somewhere that's driving distance for a lot of D three schools and is, is not going to be guaranteed to have cold weather that time of year, but Salem's not, not exactly Florida either. And, and that previously had been tried playing the game in Alabama and in Florida. And I think if it moved to Texas, it would be, you know, you, you, you're probably going to get better weather in that third week of December, but you, um, but you don't have a real, real you know, you just people are gonna have to fly or else they can't go if the game's in Texas. So I think the Canton thing um, is appealing for a lot of reasons, but the main one being Ohio is is either obviously driving distance for for Mount Union, which is about twenty miles down the road, um, but it's also driving distance for if a team makes it from New York or or um, Illinois, or, you know, places where you could see. Uh, you could see it happening. So that, that's, I mean, that, those are my main thoughts on. I think, you know, it's pretty well established over the years that um, we we like Salem because they they do a good job of um, embracing it. You know, they make the game feel like 
they they take it seriously. It's a big it's big it's uh it's big to them. They treat it like it's a big game. Uh, they you, know, you don't ever want to be like the the small game in a big city, which maybe would would be what happens in Detroit. I think it's much better to be um, what it would be in Canton or Salem or or somewhere like that, where when it comes to town, um, the city is big enough to have the capacity to treat it like a big game, but um, but small enough to care about it. The thing about Canton that uh, we haven't really talked about so much is weather in the third week of December would obviously be, uh, it would never, there's never a really a chance that it would be good weather, I guess. Let's put it that way, uh, at least in terms of warmth. Uh, I also, I think I would be concerned if I were the committee, am I interested in basically handing Mount Union a home game or essentially a home game for the Stag Bowl in years that it's going to be in Canton, Ohio? Because we cannot... Uh, assume that Mount Union is going to not make the Stag Bowl over the course of the next few years. I don't think Mount Union is going anywhere. Yeah, but Mount Union draws pretty well in, in Salem, and it certainly would be much different in Canton, where you you don't have to take a day off or or pay for travel to go. You could just go, and it would be like a home game for them, and it would be uh, in some ways a, a an unfair advantage. But at the, you'd, you'd get a, a, a crowd that you can't pull in Salem. You know, the 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 one time we saw a crowd. Uh, inch over or would have inched over 10,000 uh, was when Bridgewater was in the game. And, and that was uh, about two hours up I-81 from Salem in Virginia. So anything I think that's driving distance for a national championship, suddenly you have a whole class of people who, you know, this is this is a holiday party time of year. And I, I got family things to do because it's so close to Christmas and it's so close to the other holidays in December. But um People can go to that game if it's in driving distance. So I, I think it would be a cool experience, you know, if you're Wisconsin Whitewater or you're a team in in the in the MIAC or CCIW where you have a legitimate um, chance of of being in that uh, national championship game, and your opponent may be Mount Union. You probably don't want to see it in Canton, but it's also the home of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. It's um, you know it's going to be a, uh, a a great atmosphere. Um, and I think I think as a player, you get yeah, you get between the lines. Uh, that stuff kind of doesn't matter as much, you know. And the one other point we should make is that the weather is bad in in every other round of the the playoffs for teams from Wisconsin and Ohio and New Jersey and New York and New England. So for the vast majority of D three, really, besides the Texas schools, the West Coast schools, and some of the schools in uh, in in the Southeast, the weather is going to be bad. November, December, anyway. I mean, the vast majority uh, of D3 is in is in a, a cold-weather part of the country anyway. And this seems like a good time to remind people that uh, the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by nobody. This is the time where it could be sponsored by somebody. Your somebody could be getting its brand in front of, especially right now, these are uh, football coaches who have input into turf and stadium upgrades, helmets, uh, they may be looking to take an overseas trip or a trip out of the country in order to play a game some spring or some summer. You know, if your organization does any of those things and you want to talk to people who have budget to spend, this is how you reach them. You reach them through the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. So if you're not sponsoring and currently uh, all of you listening are not sponsoring, this is the time to make a change. Drop me an email at pat.coleman at D3Sports.com and we'll talk. Now on the Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Frank Rossi of 
in the huddle and also uh, our sideline guy from the Stag Bowl, but uh, here to talk specifically about some of the breaking news that happened uh, earlier this week or, uh, as it were, a day before this podcast dropped in which we broke the news that Buffalo State will be heading to the Liberty League in a, a move that seems to be all but signed, sealed, and delivered. The Liberty League finally gets its seventh team uh, almost two years after the NUMAC uh, pulled three teams out from under the rug of the Liberty League. Liberty League will finally be whole coming into the 2018 season. So uh, first of all, uh, Frank, thanks for uh, joining the two of us here on this uh, portion of the podcast. Uh, normally, I feel like I'm going to be uh, about 20 degrees colder than you guys when I join you uh, from the Stag Bowl sideline. But ironically, the last time we had Liberty League news to talk about was when Ithaca was announced on a Stag Bowl week two Decembers ago as the sixth member of the Liberty League. And it's been a while until this point where Buffalo State appears to be that seventh team. So it's great to be with you guys to discuss it. You know, Frank, in the huddle obviously covers primarily Liberty League and then Eastern Region uh, issues in general. So I know you guys have been focused really uh, intently on this kind of slow motion process that the Liberty League went through to find uh, team number six and then team number seven. And of course, that seven team most important to keep the automatic bid. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, James Baker, my co-host, and I were working the phones along with our good friend Dave McHugh uh, and uh, you to sort of look at this uh, information that got dropped earlier in the week to us. Uh, and it was one of those kind of we see it and we're in disbelief because it doesn't fit the parameters that we were told all along the Liberty League looks at when it's trying to uh, find a team to include even in athletics. It's a very academic centric league when they look at membership. And it's not to, you know, take that away from Buffalo State per se, but the general gist of that was always to avoid SUNY-based schools, state schools in uh, the state of New York, in inclusion. And so we took a long, hard look at this and tried to source this in many different ways to make sure this was true. And uh, it led back every time to Buffalo State. And uh, as uh, you saw on the site, uh, or as listeners saw on the site, uh, the news dropped earlier in the week and is indeed in the final stages, it sounds like, of happening. Frank, I know you've talked to more people in the Liberty League uh, than we have about this. What's the general sense uh, among the football people uh, about this move? I think you don't want to use the word desperation coming into this situation, but the Liberty League was in a definite pickle, and the football folks knew that especially uh, because with a limited number of schools that could be affiliate members which means just the sport of football and not all sports out there it really became a conundrum of what to do and schools like the university of rochester and union often weigh in a little more heavily uh, with their presidents kind of looking in on this with the academic end of it being a lot of the importance for them and so there weren't many options if they were going to take a private school from the empire eight you know, let's say in Alfred, St. John Fisher, Utica, or Hartwick, those are the four that uh, jumped to mind in the Empire 8 that are private schools, then they sort of, you know, have to look at it as an all-in scenario with these schools. So if they were going to go affiliate, football only, the only ones out there are state schools, like Buffalo State, and that was the conundrum they were in. Do we go full membership with a member we might not otherwise have chosen, or do we want to go in just with football? 
And that was the back and forth that had been talked about for the last two years quite a bit, just trying to identify what to do. And I think there's some relief that they can, you know, go to this Buffalo State decision. But there's a little bit of publicly uh, folks kind of shrugging at it, saying, well, all this, those things you told us over the years, it doesn't apply here. Is this, just, is this a change, a marriage of convenience? What is this exactly? And we're going to find out probably over the next months how this exactly works. Keith, for Buffalo State, this is their fifth affiliation in the course of the last 16 years or so. Um, what's your take on how this changes or does what it does to the balance of the power in the East region or at least in the state of New York? Well, I don't think there's a major change to the balance of, of power in the East region, but I do think it's uh, kind of fascinating that we've been doing this now a little more than 15 years, Pat, and we've seen Buffalo State go from independent to the uh, ACFC, which was the conference that was Wesley and and Salisbury State a long time ago, then the NJAC, and Buffalo State wasn't very good as an NJAC member, two and eight records in there, a, nine, a one and nine record. Then to the Empire Eight, which seemed like the logical place for it to be, and and at the same time, uh, they became a, a winning program. They knocked off Wisconsin Whitewater when they were number one in the nation, um, and this seemed where they where they belonged. But I think what makes uh, the Liberty League attractive from from Buffalo State standpoint is that it's probably uh, in 2017 and beyond a, a more winnable league. And really, I guess we should say two, 2018, 2019, 2020 and beyond. Uh, it's a more winnable league than than the Empire 8 is, which is the Empire 8 is sort of uh, has become over the past few years kind of uh, a handful. Pretty much every team could go seven and three uh, if it were in a weaker league, could go eight and two, nine and one. But they're all so good uh and so even that, you know, you end up having maybe what, what's a playoff worthy team, you know, at, at six and four. Uh, and so Buffalo State probably uh, opens the door to uh, to you know, be more likely to to make the playoffs and, and have those significant national games. If we want to step back a, a bit and, and take a look um, at what the East looks like and Pat, I can barely do it. Uh, Frank, I don't know if, if you can do it off the top of your head without looking at this graphic that you include on the site every time we have a <laughs> um, a story yeah. that uh, that involves movement because it's hard to keep track of who went where. But the reason that it, that it really happened is um, because for the longest time there were 16 New England schools playing in one conference for one automatic bid, and it was sort of uh, obvious over the course of time that they were going to figure out that really because the ratio is is between seven to one and eight to one um, that they were eventually going to figure out hey we, we have two automatic bids that um, that that were that and we're only putting one team in the playoffs so I, I think that has been um, behind or, or part of the reason for a lot of the movement and then I think also you know you're looking for teams who are either trying to find a geographic partner a uh, a, a institutional match a little bit better match or frankly, you know, a conference a that will have them in the case of say like Alfred state or um, a conference that maybe is more winnable. Um, you know, you look at someone like Catholic, which was competitive for a long time was the, was the dominant program at one point uh, in the ODAC. And, and now, you know, had, had fallen on hard times and now we'll go to the new Mac where, where probably they'll have a better chance of, of winning a conference. Frank Rossi is one of those guys who is, let's say a, uh, uh, a pool C apocalypse guy. Uh, he's been <laughs> he's been tracking the number of automatic bids over the course of the uh, past several years, and as we continue to approach 
I don't know quite where the doomsday number is. Maybe 28 automatic bids and just four at-larges is is where things begin to get hairy. We're getting really close there. This will be uh, this would be 27 automatic bids in 2019 if nothing else changes. And on top of that, Pat, we were uh, looking at this earlier earlier in the week. Excuse me, that you at this point in the East have eight automatic bids now. Eight automatic bids out of 27 that will exist as of 2019. They could fill out a quarter bracket uh, themselves at some point, a guaranteed eight teams. And if there's a pool C team that comes from the East, that would be unheard of just about for the East to have that much representation in the playoffs eventually. But as you said, pool C is dwindling. I think this is the second time we'll see five teams in pool C, although that used to happen with a pool B team in there as well, which is still considered a quote unquote at large team. This is uh, getting to that point where a lot of uh, schools that have strength across the nation will be in a pool C scenario at some point in their time. And somebody's going to get left out at a certain point and people will start clamoring, saying, what the heck? Why aren't there more at large bids? And you wonder we were talking to Dan Dutcher about this during our stack bowl pregame show. If the NCAA is willing to re look at football's admittance uh, or ratios as we call them for pool a pool b pool c because you can't expand the field any more than 32 teams we don't know where it's going but there comes a point probably in the next five or six years that when somebody gets left out those schools begin to clamor for a redo on this process and there are many different ways to go at that but Right now, 27 Pool A and 5 Pool C and no Pool B bids would be what we're looking at in 2019 and beyond. And uh, we have to get comfortable with that for the time being. Uh, Frank, before we let you go, uh, one of the things, and I want to get both of you guys' take on this, there's a lot of opportunity for these teams uh, across these two conferences to play each other, and it does sound like it's going to be a fairly formalized manner. So if you were the ones making out the schedule for Empire 8 and Liberty League teams, would you want to play twice guaranteed across each other so there's eight games locked up you want to play three times so there's nine games locked up or maybe even think about playing four times so your entire 10 game schedule is kind of combined within these groups well i think it whether regardless of the actual number i think it makes a lot of sense for new york schools to play other new york schools and even though from a a non-native new yorker or you you know Upstate kind of spans a, a, a pretty big area. You can go really from Rochester to you know Albany to the Finger Lakes. So it's a pretty it's, it covers some ground. I think those are natural rivalries. You recruit against the same you know you're chasing the same kids in high school, and so even though they're going to be in different conferences and playing for for two different um, bids into the playoffs, whether you're an Empire Eight or or a Liberty League school, I think the rivalries are natural and they make a lot of sense for both teams to pursue in non-conference games. And as you mentioned, Pat, when you have only six games locked in, you need four um, or occasionally three. Um, so I think it, it, it makes sense for the two leagues to have some sort of partnership. And I, I don't think it's a number question, Pat, as much as a locationing on the calendar question, mm-hmm. because not many conferences play out-of-conference games beyond week three. And as such, week four and week five, that's where you're going to end up putting that fourth out-of-conference game becomes crucial to ensure you have somebody to schedule against in that positioning. 
the big loser today or this week was, I think, the Commonwealth Conference, the CCC, the old NEFC, because if the Liberty League and Empire 8 conferences are going to have this cross-scheduling agreement eventually, then who does the CCC go and schedule for their fourth non-conference game? That becomes a little bit tougher for them. You can't schedule all four games across because a school like RPI has got a rivalry with WPI that should not fall off the map. That's a great uh, transit trophy, uh, you know, trophy game uh, rivalry that's been played for X number of years, and it's not going anywhere. So it's not going to be four games, that's for sure, but maybe two or three. But again, it's the positioning that matters. Hey, Frank, that actually brings up uh, brings us kind of full circle to, to something that I wanted to mention is that Division Three, uh, through its conference movement in the 2000s, had almost hit this perfect sweet spot where every team was in a conference. We were down uh, to you know you could count the in the independent teams on one hand once uh, the NJAC agreement was made and in. Salisbury and and Wesley and 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 Frostburg found a home in, in the New Jersey Conference. The uh, New York schools, the State U- University of New York schools, went back to Empire Eight. Uh, the New England schools started to figure themselves out. And for like just a very brief moment, everything in D three was 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 just about perfect. Everyone had a home. They had access to an automatic bid. And then uh, and and I don't know if I got the order of things correct, but then the SAA broke off. And left the four SCAC schools by themselves. You look at a move like the uh, the, the the Liberty League made, where you say Buffalo State may not be a perfect fit, but they don't want to. You don't want to be left uh, at the table without an automatic bid. And even if you have to add someone who's not a perfect fit for a couple years, or whatever the case may be, um, you you know we know these conferences explore every option. They approach uh, each other. And uh, you just don't want to be left at the table the way the SCAC was. That was at one point really one of the great conferences in D3. And now you just kind of have four mismatched uh, football schools. You know, look, you almost have to get very comfortable with the mismatches that may exist across certain conferences. You know, does Alfred State really belong in the ECFC? What happens there ultimately? Uh, do the private schools in the Empire 8 coexist peacefully forever with the state schools that remain, Cortland, Brockport, and uh, Morrisville State uh, in there? This is going to be interesting to see how the marriages last and the mismatches play out, mismatches in terms of what the rest of the league looks like, and then you know these other schools that don't necessarily fit perfectly with those. So the old one of these things is not like the others on Sesame Street back when. Well, you're going to have a little bit of that. And can they coexist? And, you know, Buffalo State seems to be happy with this move. Why else would they do it? Because it's a, it's a large move for them. So we'll see how it plays out, Keith. But you're right. History will teach us a lot. And hopefully the same mistakes aren't made during that history lesson we're getting. Frank, I appreciate your help uh, helping us track down this story and uh, really, being, uh, really following this situation very closely. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, guys.
one of the big topics being talked about right now in Division Three football and in NCAA football in general is making changes to preseason practice, including eliminating two-a-day practices, perhaps lengthening the preseason and opening camp even earlier. Here to talk about that, we welcome in Muhlenberg coach Mike Donnelly. There's an upcoming meeting of the NCAA Division Three Management Council where this topic will be raised. Coach, we know this topic has been discussed quite a bit in the background, and it sounds like you're not pleased with how it got to this point. Can you kind of talk us through it? You know, you, you, you talk with, uh, you know, folks that we know are going to go to Indianapolis on Monday and talk about this stuff, and you're hearing things like, this is a done deal. Uh, you know, like, it doesn't matter what we say, it's a done deal. You talk to, uh, you know, the AFCA's executive uh, director, and he says that it's a done deal. Uh, and, and then, you know, if, for me... It's all about transparency, and it's all about vetting an idea before it takes place. And we haven't had enough time to, you know, take into everything, have an open and frank discussion with all the stakeholders. And that, that's a problem because, you know, every, every coach that I've talked to in the Centennial, the MAC, no one was aware of this stuff coming down the pike until very recently. Now, uh, when I talked to Jack Liebheimer, Yesterday, and Jack's the uh, co-chair of the South RAC, yeah. uh, so he's on the national committee. Jack said that the NCAA said, we sent an email out uh, telling people that we were having a symposium in Orlando, Florida, to discuss this last summer. And I said, well, I don't remember getting that email. And to some extent, I'm like your, my kids, you know, they you get so many emails, you ignore half of them or don't see half of them. There were no coaches at it. Not one football coach showed up at it. And I reminded Jack that if there's no way Mike Donnelly's going to it because I can't afford to go to it. That's when apparently some of these uh, medical things were discussed. And um, because we weren't there, we didn't know about it. To me, you know, don't, don't we have to do more to get, you know, get the information out there? If none of the coaches show up, is it because we all don't care or is it because maybe the information didn't get disseminated well enough. Um, so, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of misinformation floating around, and a lot of talk about how conferences are going to react to it. Uh, there's, no, there's no conversation between us and Division One or us and Division II. Um, you know, and like I said, the underlying current is that it really doesn't matter what we're going to say. Uh, you know, this is a done deal. This is already, this is going to be passed in what they call non-controversial legislation. One of the things that you talk about in your kind of introduction to this whole concept is that the Division Three model, not having a spring ball, or at least not padded practices in spring ball, and maybe not all conferences having a, a full uh, complement of spring practices, means that your preseason or our preseason here in Division Three is significantly different than that in the other divisions. And I was wondering if you could maybe just kind of talk us through a little bit about how that, how you see that, how that impacts you, and what you see when kids come to camp in August. Well, let, let's just uh, use that as a stepping-off point. Division One has a kid, uh, a player, in full pads, learning how to tackle, learning how to take on low blocks, protect himself, and uh, get ready for the next season. Uh, then they stay on campus all summer where the strength coach 
in a mandatory setting will work with these kids on a day-to-day basis throughout the entire summer, literally running a football practice. They lift, they do agility, they throw skelly, and they are cranked up all summer under the tutelage of a full-time strength and conditioning staff. And then they come back to preseason. Uh, it's, I was told yesterday that Rutgers will be reporting this year on July 24th. And then they play football from July 24th until, if they're good enough, they're going to play till mid or late December when their bowl game ends. Division three, the model is no spring ball. We can uh, introduce our plays, but there's no contact of any kind. Then the kids during the summer have to work out completely on their own. And you know how that's going to be. Even if you've got a, a really dedicated group of kids like I feel I have, they're still coming back in good shape, but not close to the kind of condition that they have to be in to play a game. And we have fewer practices and our season then ends the week, uh, first weekend or second weekend at the latest in November, unless you are a playoff team. So our season is three months long. Um, so the, the, the model for the first thing, eliminating double sessions, at Division One, that, that's a perfect model when you're in football that long. They don't need double sessions anymore. And if the NCAA is going to take uh, you know, double sessions away from all the divisions because of the medical uh, proof, uh, then we just need to fess up and pony up the money so that this is the cost of best practices and pay for preseason so that our kids don't lose any more practices than we currently have. We have 25, and Division One has 29. Uh, the day off has to be, uh, by the legislation that's being passed, means one day off completely away from football. No lifting, no meetings, no walkthroughs, nothing that's football-related. And I would throw out to you that a Division One kid absolutely should have that day off. Uh, he's been in football since April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. He needs that day off. And last year, Muhlenberg brought back our whole football team on August 13th, and School started on August 24th. So our kids had to, uh, you know, work seven days a week for 10 days. And to give a kid a day off in the middle of preseason in Division Three because he needs the mental rest is just not accurate. Uh, and it kills us in terms of our preparation for getting kids ready to go. Uh, you know, because we're teaching, they're in our classroom during that time. And, uh, you know, you, they, they need to be in the classroom learning football, watching films, walk through of plays, weight training, so that they can be ready to go on that first day. Let me ask, um, let me ask you another so, question before we go too far from that. Uh, I would also point – I would also throw out the possibility, too. You've got, in any case, from any cases – 70-some to 150-some kids who you now have on campus with no classes, no structure, no what's, uh, whatsoever for a day in August. And doesn't that sound like a, a possibility that something uh, you know problematic might occur because of that? Well, you're not the only one that's thought of that, Pat. Uh, you know, what do you do? The kids go home. 
you, you think some freshman football player who's homesick won't stay home? Uh, or, you know, maybe they decide to have a party on them. You know, the, the there's it's all sorts of problems. Um, and and it, it's really not necessary. Our kids don't need a day off during preseason for mental health reasons. Uh, you know, but the Division One guys absolutely do. Absolutely do. And but it's, it shows that there's a there is a huge difference between Division One and three. And uh, you know, some people have reported to me, don't ask me who, but that there's some recognition now because there's been so much kickback about what are we doing here that uh, you know when they put this together, a lot of people thought, oh, all the divi- all the divisions are the same, and and they're not. Uh, and that's what comes from not vetting it completely and transparently for all your stakeholders. Uh, because as a Division three coach, I, w- I would have been the first one to say, I don't know if this model works for us. Um, but it sure does look good on a piece of paper for a Division one program. Um, so anyway, and then the, the other one is uh, that they're talking about uh, with the day off, you're down to six days of practice during preseason, and you're going to have three days where you can have live contact instead of four, and that the other days can be what they call non-contact, low-impact practices, which basically to most of us, the interpretation would mean that uh, you can't have thud. And thud is the way I get my football team ready. You don't tackle people to the ground, but, you know, linemen bump into each other, and uh, it's full speed. Uh, You know, we've been doing it for years. Uh, Our kids are safe. We have had minimal numbers of concussions. But if the kids aren't running into each other in practice enough times, then I'm just deathly afraid that something bad could happen if they run into each other day one. Or if you haven't gotten them in condition uh, because we have fewer opportunities um, that a kid could uh, have a problem on September 1st if the temperature is 90 degrees and the humidity is 90%. So, again, uh, you know, we, I, I have, uh, you know, we've talked about within our league, you know, maybe we should have the ability to have the three days alive and the other days have thud drills to make sure that, uh, you know, that we're doing nothing that involves taking a kid to the ground or blocking below the waist. Let me ask this, as you know, seeing as you've been a, a head coach and a Division three head coach for a long time, how has your philosophy on contact in practice and in preseason changed, or has it changed over the course of the years? Have you seen other coaches and other programs change? Well, uh, the answer to your question is, of course, they've changed. But I realized a long time ago that uh, somehow, some way, uh, I can get the Muhlenberg football team ready to play, and our live work is very minimal. Um, you know, you may not believe this, but uh, there are, we do not do any live work at all during our practices during preseason, except on the days when we're allowed to go live, we will have a five-minute live tackling drill, D-backs versus wideouts. Um, and that's a, that's a big change for some coaches, but for me, it's been a great thing because all of my players get to the first game healthy. Uh, and no one said to me, hey, Mike, your defense can't tackle. Uh, you know, we've, I think that there, uh, you know, there are some great teams that I know absolutely do the same thing on our level. 
minimal live work, a lot of thud, you know, to take the place of it. And, uh, and we're, we're getting to games healthy and keeping our kids healthy. So the other thing that we've done, the big, big change for us, Pat, is we just uh, lock, stock, and barrel uh, bought into the Seahawk tackling three years ago uh, and just ripped those pages out of our playbook on the tackling that I'd done for 38 years at the time and replaced it with the Seahawk tackles. And we absolutely love it. And it's just a trend setting. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure most people have gone for this tackle, which means head behind the ball, you know, roll tackle using the, the, uh, the techniques employed by uh, rugby players. Uh, and we use it and we love it. And it's been a godsend for us. And so that was a that was a major change for us that took place. And, and I scratch my head and say, man, uh, you know, for years and years and years, we put our head across the bow to tackle. And, and I'm not so sure about going behind the ball carrier. But now I'm saying, uh, how could we have not been doing this a long time ago? It's been excellent. Uh, I've been here for 20 years, and I've coached college ball for 41 years. And uh, the, the safety of the kids has always been paramount. And uh, we know here at our college that we can get it done with very little live work. We have spent a significant amount of time in this conversation about some of the bigger issues uh, uh, facing college football and Division Three football. And we don't have a lot of time left to talk about uh, Muhlenberg specifically for 2017. So I guess if I had one question to ask you about uh, what's coming up for your program this season, I'd have to say, uh, who's going to play quarterback after Nick Palladino has been the man for you guys for uh, all four years that he was there? I am. Uh, <laughs> all right. No, uh, we we have a we have an open competition. We have uh, you know three or four quarterbacks or five quarterbacks on the roster that that all want to take the shot. Uh, we have uh, minimal numbers of experienced guys back, and you know we're we're hoping that one of our one of our young guys. Uh, we, to be named, we'll step up and we're going to start, you know, that process on Monday. Media and fans, obviously, those are the things that uh, that we're focused on, right? Who's the starting quarterback? Well, what are the other big questions that you guys are looking uh, looking to solve here coming up in your uh, off-season workouts and then when camp opens in August? Yeah, and, you know, uh, Pat, we, we graduate uh, three starters on defense and five on offense, and every one of them was an all-conference player. Uh, so we, we have to have a lot of our guys step up and step in. We lose a tremendous outside linebacker, an all-conference uh, player, an all-conference nose, a four-year starter, all-conference corner. And uh, on, the, on the other side, we lose that great quarterback. We lose two receivers that caught 77 balls apiece, an All-American tackle, a first-team all-conference uh, guard. Uh, so, you know, the, the mules, the young guys that are downstairs pumping iron right now are, you know, they're anxious to say, Coach, I'm the man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fit in here. Uh, you know, we're going to build it around Nick Savant, who's, uh, you know, tremendous, tremendous tailback, and, mm -hmm. and all the guys that have been working hard to get ready for their turn. And uh, we're excited about the challenges coming up. So following this interview, I made some more phone calls and found out this. Indeed, no Division Three football coaches were at this meeting that was held last summer, and apparently only one football coach uh, was there overall. But this is coming out of a recommendation from Brian Hainline, the chief medical officer for the NCAA. And, uh, you know, as someone who's 
worked in corporate America, I have to say, if as an organization you make the hire to uh, hire a chief medical officer, you darn well better follow his medical advice or you're really opening yourself out to, up to uh, some significant liability. What's interesting to me about the entire situation is that it's not being presented, at, at least in Mike Donnelly's words, as a complaint. Like, uh, oh, Division One gets more time than we do when it's being presented as fewer practices might actually expose players to more injury, right? Less practice and, and less contact means your players aren't as prepared for the grind and, and their form isn't as refined, whether that's tackling form, whether that is uh, being able to uh, to avoid getting blocked below the waist or, or that sort of thing. You know, they're basically playing worse football. And the length of season disparity between Division One, Division Three, you rarely hear it articulated like uh, like Coach Donnelly did, where you have Division One players starting in the spring and basically uh, going nonstop uh, to December, whereas uh, Division Three players are are working out on their own and coming in late August and then and then playing games and then they're done by mid November for the most part. So I, I think you know that he raises a valid point when you talk about the difference between a day off. For a guy who's been going nonstop since since the spring and a day off from practice, but being allowed to uh, to watch film or being called in to look over tendencies or or some other kind of thing, you know, to walk through plays, but uh, but not be on not be on the field, not hit. Um, I think those are all pretty big distinctions, and and I think as a coach, when you're trying to install and teach, and you just don't have enough practices to do it, you, you either have to be more efficient in in the way you uh, run practice or uh, you just have to, to scale some things back. And so I, I think, you know, the uh, he, he raised some pretty legitimate points. I also thought it was interesting where he talked about, uh, you know, the need for uh, for thud to get ready, which uh, which I think is probably the prevailing uh, wisdom at this point in time where you don't want to hit hard in practice, but you don't want to not hit at all. But there's a pretty convincing counter argument since uh, St. John's doesn't hit in practice, and they're one of the best programs in the country. And, and I thought the adoption of the Seahawks tackling style, the, the rugby style tackling for, uh, for, for tackle football is fascinating too. You know, the, the, what else I guess is a little bit weird to me is that I reported to my first football camp in 1994, and the rules aren't all that different as far as like when you can, can work out. We had spring workouts uh, where the rule was basically a coach could be there or football could be there, but not both at the same time. And 23 years later, the game is very different and people are much more aware or in, in tune to injury prevention than uh, than we are. But the practice schedules don't seem all that different. Um, well, I, mean, I guess they do in some ways. We definitely had two a days. And I remember basically only having enough energy to practice, eat and sleep. And, and so maybe that's uh, another good reason to let Two a days be bygones. Also, in the course of talking about preseason practice time, talked with Whitewater coach Kevin Bullis. We'll talk with Coach Bullis more in the April edition of the Around the Nation podcast, but wanted to get his take on preseason practice, especially, Coach, coming from a program that's had a lot of postseason practice over the course of the last decade or so as well. But there's been a lot of talk about where, uh, you know, how much preseason practice time is appropriate, elimination of two-a-day practices in the uh, Division Three football and in the entire NCAA football preseason. And I was wondering if you were abreast of those conversations and uh, had some thoughts about them. You know, yeah, we've, we've as coaches, had a chance to talk. In fact, last week we had our, um, our Wisconsin football, our, the WIAC coaches had our spring meeting. And so we had a chance to, you know, really share some thoughts on it. I, 
you know, I think ultimately, Pat, a lot of people have really started to, even prior to this, started to minimize what they're doing on those two days in the past. And so I, there's not a lot of people that are pounding the table that we have to have those two a days. So I, I totally understand it because it's about the safety of the kids. Um, and, uh, you know, so a lot of it was gravitating that way anyways. I mean, it's all about keeping the kids, one, getting them better, but more importantly, keeping them healthy. And uh, um, so, I mean, this is not a surprise to us that it's going this direction. If they're adding extra preseason practice time, that brings uh, kids back to campus earlier. You know, that causes all sorts of funding issues across Division Three. How would a school like Whitewater handle it, do you think? You know, and I, I totally agree. I think we're all in the same boat. Everybody I've had a chance to talk to has, has really concern about pushing those dates further ahead because, as we all know, Division Three, our, our kids um, – don't get paid to play the game. We don't get scholarships. Our children, our kids do not. And, and so when they come to camp early, that means they're leaving their job early, uh, and, and could be making money and, and number of programs, um, kids have to pay money to pay for their meals, uh, during fall camp. A number of them have to pay for their dorm or their, their rentals. Um, and so all of this really kind of adds on, uh, a financial concern for the, uh, football program for the athletic department as well as the kids. So I, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's a lot of people that are hugely in favor of, of moving the start of camp um, ahead dramatically. About moving the camp date, some of this can be handled as a one-year exception this year to make up for losing preseason practices. But uh, going forward, it'll need to be voted on by the Division Three membership. And, you know, Keith, anytime football issues get in front of the entirety of Division Three, it's been really unpredictable. There's close to 200 schools that don't have football, and, you know, sometimes it's a mess when they vote. When I think back to... You know, almost 15 years ago now when we finally got something resembling spring practice in Division Three football, something that was not just a conditioning practice but actually had a chance to put a football in there. It, it was really interesting, the kind of coalition of schools that, that went through and uh, allowed this to happen. There, there, there are almost enough non-football schools to block almost anything that football wants to do. And so we saw that, uh, in a sense, a couple of years ago when football tried to push for even more spring practices and it did not do well. In a lot of senses, it did not do well against fo- uh, among football schools, but it really did not do well against among schools that did not have football. Yeah, and these are the things that, you know, for our listeners, you know, a lot of our listeners are really in tune to how D3 works. But for those of you who are sort of listening on a more layman's uh, basis, there are a lot of things that happen behind the scene, scenes that, that – um, dictate the way D3 football is played. One being, you know, a lot of the rules decisions and a lot of the money decisions are made with Division One in mind. And, and, and that's who brings in the money, so that makes sense. But then also you have these uh, rivalries or coalitions, as you mentioned, that, that develop uh, between D3 institutions and D3 conferences for different reasons, for, you know, wanting to limit roster size or wanting to limit the amount of time um, that students – have to give to to football um and and it it presents some some pretty interesting situations but i I think what's weird and and what coach donnelly articulated is that sometimes it's not even d3 football coaches or administrators the folks who are most in tune with what the needs are of a d3 program sometimes those aren't even people making the decisions 
Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, joined by Peter Sturzma, the head coach of Hope College, and uh, entering his second season as an alum and now as someone trying to revive the program. Did a pretty good job with that in the first season out. And uh, Coach, first of all, uh, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me here, Pat. I appreciate it. So first season you come in, you have a very successful high school coach in the area, obviously as a grad of the school, very invested in the success of the program, familiar with the success of the program. When you took over this program as head coach, what were the things that you were looking to do? What were the kind of the things that you thought might have the most immediate impact? Well, first of all, something that I use all the time with our recruits uh, and their parents is this, is that I enjoyed 16 years at an unbelievable high school that in a community that was so incredibly impactful for young people, educating <clears throat> young people in athletics as well as academics. And I use that as a, as, a, as a way of saying I loved what I was doing and I moved on to something that I absolutely love and that is uh, Hope College and a place that, so I believe in what I'm selling, not a wizard selling snake oil. Um, I really truly believe in the product that we have here. And I always want our, our recruits to realize that you know they're recruiting us as much as we're recruiting them. And so as I took this position, I realized how important our brand of Hope College is to alumni and to people around the country, um, that this is, uh, you know, we want to be measured in 20 years and not four. What are our young men that leave our program doing? Are they good dads? Are they good husbands? Uh, are they contributing to society? And not just the four years of being here, because we, we're going to recruit guys that can ball out on the field and guys that can ball out in the classroom, uh, because you can do both. You don't have to have one or the other. And so one of the things I think that we tried to focus on was just the culture of how we go about our business. I think when you have people pushing on a rock and you're all pushing on a rock and you have a vision and you sell that vision each and every day and you hammer that vision to your players, to your coaches and everybody surrounding your program, people buy in. People buy into something that's exciting and fun and we feel like each and every day, we have a motto within our program about getting 1% better today. And we know that not every day is going to be glorious and you're not going to have that feeling like you got better. But if each and every day you wake up with that mindset that you want to get better, that creates something that continues to roll. Because we feel like once you get a rock rolling downhill and you're all pushing it, that rock's going to go faster downhill. You took over a program that I guess basically had for lack of a better term, had really bottomed out, right? It was one of the worst seasons in decades that you kind of stepped into. How much of that turnaround was attitude? How much of it was new kids? Because you had to have you know, much better success, but with a lot of the same kids. We, we had a lot of the same kids, and yet we had young guys that played. And I will tell you, you know, yes, we had a, a significant turnaround. They were 2-8 and eight and went 7-3. and three. And I give full credit to our players. Our guys bought in. You know, after we finished our final league game to go 5-1 in our league and beat our rival in Albion, I just want our guys to look around and say, look what you just did because you all bought into something. Uh, you know, it was not about individuals. It was not about the things that happened individually in those successes. It was about a team. And when you have a team and you have something that you all are pushing on it, good things happen. We haven't done anything yet. We accomplished, they accomplished something that's significant. But as a program, we're just trying to keep that as a part of the process. We, that doesn't gain any yards for next year. It doesn't stop anybody. We feel strongly about the process. I don't want people to talk about league championships and national championships. I want us to talk about game one. What are we going to do from now until game one to prepare ourselves to play a game? Because if you do that in part of the process, each and every week as a part of the process, good things happen. Uh, during the middle of the last season, I think is when you kind of hit the radar for a lot of us. Uh, you know, I don't know, and you can hopefully take us through it a little bit. Uh, but all of a sudden, 
about midway through the season, start piling up incredible rushing numbers. Now, was that a was that a philosophy change? Was that forced by injuries? Was that something you were always you know kind of working your way towards installing over the course of the season, or how did that come about? Number one, a, f- a philosophy that I have as a head coach is you have to run the ball. If you look back on the people and the teams that have won Super Bowls, national championships at Division One, Two, II, and Three, and state championships at the high school level, they can all run the ball. They can run the ball effectively. And so when I took this position, I was coming from a place where we ran the ball. I said, we have to establish that. Now, I am also a big believer in that we have to win the game. I am not a big believer that you have to be balanced 50-50 and say, hey, we're 50-50 balanced, but we lost. The only stat that matters at the end of that game is did we get the W. And so if I, I look at that, and I think Irv Sigler and our offensive staff have done a great job of saying, what are they giving us? If we're going to establish that mentality of a tough physical come off the ball and run the ball at you, we feel that the passing game can come along with that. We want to establish something, and I, I keep going back to that. We want to establish a culture of toughness, physical grit, guys that play fast and play hard. And I believe, and as long as I'm the head coach here, this is what my beliefs are, is that, that is, you establish that and people buy into that. I will also tell you that you win with defense. I, as long as I've been involved in this game, you win with defense. Mike Ricketts and our defensive staff have done a great job. Nothing changed from Mike Ricketts. He has been the coordinator for 16 years. And his players and our defensive players buy into his system. There's a reason why systems succeed. There's a reason why culture beats scheme over time. Because our defensive players buy into that and they bought into it. And now you combine a great defense, which I thought we had this year, with an offense still trying to find themselves. We were just still installing things in terminology and getting to know our players. So now you run the ball very well. Guess what? We always say the best defense is when Coach Ricketts and the defensive staff have their arms folded on the sidelines. All right. So I have to, uh, I have to now ask, you're still installing stuff, uh, which I assume is, uh, if I'm going kind of mentally back through the, the, the game-by-game stuff, it was about uh, game four or game five when uh, some of those things started to change, at least statistically for you guys. Um, so this is going to dovetail into a, a conversation that uh, – you and I have already had for almost an hour before we even started taping here, is uh, what does, uh, you know, would you have benefited, I guess, from a, a longer preseason to better install some of those things? No, I, I don't believe that an extra five days would have benefited us of install. We were going to go through a transition regardless. And I will tell you, spinning into next year, I am my expectations for our players and for our coaching staff when it comes to the install of our offense and defense is that we should be 20% better. We should be 20% better from where we were. We were trying to get to know each other's names. An extra five days wouldn't have changed that. Uh, It would not have changed the outcome for playing a very good football team in Monmouth game one last year. They were a national contender. They were a team that went 10-0 in the regular season. Five extra days or a different preseason model would not have changed the way we played or the way we progressed. I think a measure of a good team is did you get better each and every week and each and every progression that you make through the season. Knowing that every team's going to go through injuries and different changes and different competitive schedule levels and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But did you get better as a team and as a program in that building process? And to that answer, I think we did. Part of this uh, podcast over the course of uh, this entire 
hour, hour plus, I don't know how it's going to end up, uh, and, and not just with you, is uh, talking about uh, some of the changes that have been talked about for preseason. Uh, you know, and we've talked on this podcast before over the course of the last year or so about contact in practice and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. So uh, my, my question to you is, how do you feel, I guess, a little bit more big picture about some of the things that people are talking about for how we might change preseason practice across college football? I'm going to start with this. As a high school coach for 16 years, we constantly were looking at, in our community, how do we continue to bring the game of football back to the forefront instead of having it continue to be knocked down, to continue to have it talked about in a negative way because it's an incredibly powerful game from the standpoint of building of community to building of team to building of commitment to building of hard work. Uh, and toughness and some of those things that go along with it. Um, and so as a high school coach in that mentality, I still feel like I'm a high school coach. I just happen to be at a zip code that, uh, coaching college football. Uh, but using that, if every decision we make as, a, as, as an institution and as a legislative body, the NCAA, I want us to look at what opportunities are we doing to bring the game of football back to being the game that it can be. An incredibly powerful, fun, exciting, energizing, life-fulfilling experience. So all the decisions we make should not be based on propaganda or based on, you know, on research that may or may not be valid and not based on perception, but based on the realities of what can we do to provide young men in the game of football opportunities, opportunities to play for four years. Many of our guys at our level are not going to the league. It's, and, and, and what did I tell you very early on? Measure us in 20 and not four. So what can we do in those four years to provide opportunities for our young men that are going to achieve success on the field and off of the field? And so I say all of the decisions we make have to be driven, in my opinion, by that philosophy. What can we do to bring the game of football back to the forefront of being an incredibly popular, because it still is, by the way. I don't think we've lost that. I think there's things that are being talked about that may not be using the guidelines that I just mentioned as our overall underlying principles of why we make change. Uh, you, as far as I can tell, might be uh, among the few coaches that intentionally forego uh, a preseason scrimmage. Tell us a little bit about that. That comes back from my, my days of being a high school coach. You know, many high schools will do four or five-way scrimmages where they will scrimmage five or six teams, if you will, on a day and play, you know, 20 plays and just to get different looks. When I was a high school coach, we, we scrimmaged one team and did 20 offensive plays with the first group, 20 offensive plays with the second group. We said, that's enough. And in some of our cases with our guys, we pulled them out of that scrimmage. Why? Because I felt that if we didn't do our job teaching and executing and the pedagogy of teaching ahead of time, that scrimmage wasn't going to make or break us. And I've taken that same philosophy here as a college football coach and said, certainly other schools scrimmage other, every, and, and, and they have their own decisions for that and philosophies, and I think that's wonderful. But I've said, I don't believe that helps us get to where we want to get to. If we're doing our job, and the pedagogy of teaching, of installing, and how fast we practice, and how fast we execute, and how hard we coach, and the passion that we bring every day. I don't believe a preseason scrimmage gives us any more advantage. And on the same token, doesn't give us a disadvantage when it comes to our preparation for game one. Monmouth beat us fair and square with a better football team. They were better coached, and they beat us. A scrimmage wouldn't have made a difference as to the outcome of that game. And so I said, I look at it and say, okay, now we have to practice where we're going to scrimmage ourselves. We're going to scrimmage ourselves, and we're going to do it in a controlled manner. And when we might say, hey, we're going to go for X amount of plays, and if we get going through X amount of plays and I feel like we're going to cut it off, guess what? I'm going to blow the whistle. We're done. And we're going to do it at a time period that if we did have an injury, 
that we have enough time to have that young man recover for the time that we're going to play. Because that's what we're measured on, those 10 games in the regular season. Not the looks that we get or the simulated situations that we put ourselves in. I feel we can do that if we're doing our job as coaches. So you played in the MIAA at a time where the MIAA was prominent in Division Three football. Uh, the conference's only national championship in 1994, shortly after you graduated. Uh, I won't mention who, uh, out of deference to you guys, because uh, it was not hope. Uh, but uh, my uh, my point being is that you know, there's been almost no success in the last 20 years, practically, in terms of uh, this conference in the Division Three football playoffs. What have you seen now that you've been through kind of the, the schedule for a year, the differences between how competitive it was when you played and how competitive it was last year when you coached? There's a lot of factors that play into that, in my opinion. Number one, you just have to look at opportunities. At that time, when, when I was playing at Hope College, there were only a few small colleges that offered opportunities to play football. There are a ton more opportunities out there, NAIA schools, uh, especially in the Midwest, that offer opportunities to play. Some have money associated with that, some don't. So I'll start with that and opportunities. Number two, you look at the state of Michigan. As a public educator, we looked at this constantly. I think the statistic is some, in some of the neighborhood of 500,000 people have left the state of Michigan over a, over a period of time. So thus, if you lose that many people, you're losing students. So therefore, your opportunities to offer kids there's not as many kids. There's not as many individuals to fill those seats. So that's part of it. I think also there's a there's a factor that has to go to look at and say there's philosophy differences amongst Division three schools that have said they're going to put more of an emphasis in certain areas. And there's a financial perspective to this. You look at a number of years ago, I think it was 10 years ago, they looked at the cost of college tuition and the earning power of the United States. And, you, and that gap has continued to get bigger. So we have to find ways to close that gap. And other schools have said, we're going to close that faster with financial aid packages and things of that nature. Knowing that at the Division three level, those financial aid packages have to be equal, whether you're an athlete or a non-athlete, they have to be equal. But I would say that that's, that has to happen within institutions, but institutions aren't obviously giving the, the the same merit or the same scholarship money based on need from school to school, right? If, you, if you're in Michigan or Michigan State, you're going to get a full athletic scholarship to play football. It's equal. Now it's about selling the opportunities for both. If you're selling the opportunities from a financial perspective, one might give you a lot more money than the other. And so you have to be able to look and change and say, how can we show the value afterwards of, of getting a job and doing the, the value-added things in a place like Hope? Because I, I will tell you, one of the reasons why I came back here is because this place, I believe in it. And you look, at the, you look at our campus, you look at the academic opportunities that we have, the, you know, the, the things that we have, the facilities, the things that we have going for us, in my opinion, second to none. And so we have that, and now we have to go out and sell that. Obviously, it has to work within the framework of the students that we're recruiting. And so long-winded answer to your question, it has to do with population. It has to do with the way some institutions in the Division three level allocate finances. I would say you're, you're sort of right about one thing you said about financial aid, but I just want to throw something back and, and get your uh, reaction to it. Because it's not mandated that it's equal between athletes, uh, athletics and non-athletic uh, student-athletes. It just has to be, it has to not favor student-athletes. I think there are a lot of cases in which uh, the incoming student-athlete population probably fares more, probably fares uh, you know, less well, more poorly. I'm sure that's the correct word in terms of uh, getting financial aid. 
You're correct on the clarification there, but there's still that's there's still no mandate as to what institutions are able to do across the country in Division Three, right? Because everybody goes through their own set of circumstances. There's different ways of financing those things. There's different academic standards for that. And 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 so what am I getting at? There, that's you've seen changes that have gone on in that. And you look at, well, there might be Division Three schools that are state schools that are competing against private schools, right? There's a there's going to be an economic difference there, which can in turn have a difference as to level or uh, of athlete that you might be getting not going to go back and forth in this debate because we could have state school versus private school debate for hours and hours in division three uh, i'm going to ask you one more question and then let you go the uh, one of the things that hope college is known for athletically is a tremendous rivalry with a school that in this case you don't get to participate in doesn't offer football should calvin start football you know, that's interesting you say that. Pat, when I was, uh, when my wife and our three children were introduced here as the head football coach a year ago, our family was introduced to the Hope College pro, uh, campus. One of the things I mentioned at a basketball game was, it happened to be the Hope-Calvin basketball game, was that how about this rivalry if Calvin had football? I think it would be outstanding. In fact, in the hometown for which I'm from, East Grand Rapids, it's about a nine iron from the Calvin campus. And I happened to speak with a, a member of, of their faculty that just was asking me my opinion. And I said, I want you to think of it less about just football and think of it uh, at, at this. And that is an event that takes place on a Saturday on a college campus that is less about the football game and more about an event on campus. When you go to a college football game on campus at a college, there's something unique. There's something special. I call it the pageantry of college football. Just like a Friday night, you go to a community event. And so I, I think the way of looking at that is like, don't look at it just football. Don't look at it just as a cost. But look at it as an epic event on your campus that brings in a lot of people. And when you bring in a lot of people to your campus, you get a chance to display your brand in a huge way. And I bet many of those people that come there have children, relatives, and other people that might someday look at that institution. And so I tend to think of it a little bit different and think out of the box. Do I think it'd be awesome? Could you imagine a Hope Calvin rivalry football game? I think you'd probably have to find a different site to put everybody in there, and that could be incredibly powerful for our institutions. Keith, this is just 18 minutes of a two-hour conversation I had with Sturzma on this uh, on this day. I was in Michigan to cover the, the Division Three Women's Basketball Final Four. Not that I recorded two hours and cut it down to 18 minutes. This was just the recorded version, but I, I, one of the things I think is this really gets across the whole gist of the rest of the conversation, this guy's energy and personality and that sort of thing. That's the first thing that jumped out to me, too. I mean, you can really hear the energy and how he talks. And, and even though the, some of the things he says are, are coaching cliches, you know, you can just tell by how he talks that hope has a chance to get better and remain a, a pretty good football program. I mean, a guy says life fulfilling experience when he comes to recruit you. Sure. I'm in, you know, um, I think he's right. Uh, one of the points he mentioned that, that, you know, five days probably wouldn't have changed the result against Monmouth. Um, but those practice days and, and a scrimmage would help. You know, I think as a player, nothing gets you more locked in than a game day. So I, I would always be in favor of a scrimmage, even if the actual time you spend on the field during a scrimmage maybe wouldn't be as much as you would spend during practice. I think it really there is a really big benefit uh, to going through the feel of game day that you don't get from practice, even though I, I get what he's saying that that as a coach, you know, if you if you teach it right. 20 plays aren't going to going to make a break. And I also think that just the Michigan stuff fascinates me, not just that that um, the population of the state 
has declined and therefore there are fewer kids going to college. But no state really has more of a, of a D1 and D2 presence, except maybe Pennsylvania. You know, D2 in Michigan, that's where Grand Valley and Saginaw and, and a lot of the GLIAC schools are, are from. So that's like the D2 powerhouses are in Michigan. And so you, you figure um, Michigan and Michigan State get their talent, then Central Michigan, Eastern Michigan, Western Michigan, Grand Valley, Saginaw, Ferris, all these other schools. And then by the time, you know, and then other states are, are jumping in, there's a huge, you know, presence in, in Minnesota and Wisconsin, and they, they can come in and take kids. So by the time you get down to, to hope, you know, you, you really are um, looking at a certain kind of athlete, but you don't necessarily get, I think, everyone you wish you could get because so many other schools are able to recruit the, the best athletes in, in Michigan. And that just, that's the difference between some states in D3, why you see the, the MIAA doesn't have the same amount of success necessarily as the ASC in, in Texas, or maybe that's not a great example. Um, maybe a better example is, is you know, uh, Wisconsin, where there's Wisconsin, and then there's, there's all the YX schools. Uh, one of the things I really thought throughout the course of the entire conversation is how much uh, Sturzma reminds me of Glenn Caruso at St. Thomas. Wow, that's interesting. I, I don't, I don't know if I got that exact vibe, but that, but definitely the energy with which he talks. And we've had a couple of of guys on the podcast who who have been, you know, you just kind of feel their their energy. Uh, Dan Larson, I think from from Wisconsin, Eau Claire was another one. And you got to remember when you're when we're listening to that guy, that's what a, there's a 17 year old kid that wants to play football in college, and um, you know maybe. Didn't get didn't get recruited by the school he wanted to get recruited by and is on the fence whether he even wants to play. And that guy comes to your school or to your house or whatever and and, and starts getting you fired up. Um, and, and it's not fake, you know, it's genuine. He's not just saying all these things just to get you. He's just saying that he just you just exude passion for this program. Well, if that guy can love football that much, maybe I can love football that much. And I think it's it's really um, it's really compelling. I would imagine for a kid who isn't quite sure if Division three football is for him, you know, somebody who sells it like that is uh, is is really uh, an asset. And I, another thing that would be an asset that he mentioned is, is having that rivalry game on campus. Pat, you've been to enough of them. I've been to some, played in some. You know, it's such an event on campus, and it is one of the only things that gets me to go back to campus every year. And I know, you know, whether it's like. Union and RPI or, or Amherst and Williams or um, Wabash and DePaul, uh, every year uh, those alumni, you know, they come back to the school for that game probably more than they even come for homecoming. It's such an event, and, and having that rivalry, I think, draws people to campus in a way that almost nothing else does. Hope and Calvin football. I cannot imagine right now bringing the Holy War to the football field. That would be fantastic. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 168 for the month of March 2017. Thanks for listening, and uh, be sure to follow the rest of our coverage both on d3football.com and in social media at uh, Twitter at, at d3football and also on our Facebook page. So if you like our podcast, please consider rating it. That will help other football fans find it. And thanks for following Division Three Football and d3football.com. The executive producer of Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman, production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Thanks to our guests in this edition, Frank Rossi, Mike Donnelly, Kevin Bullis, Peter Sturzma, and sports information directors Alan Babbitt, Chris Lindecki, and Mike Falk for their time and assistance on this edition. Also, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. 
you'll get a new show monthly from now through August. So check back in to hear more from Vision 3 Football Newsmakers every four weeks or so before we get back into the weekly podcast for 2017. Next month, we'll be talking about what's coming up at the end of April, of course, is the NFL Draft. And uh, even if no Division Three football players will get drafted, we'll, of course, have plenty of free agent signings to talk about. So we will talk about some of those things in next month's podcast. And, uh, yeah, we'll hear you then. Or you'll hear us then. Something like that. You're just going to keep going? I think uh, I, mean, I don't have any other ways to say that. I certainly said it wrong the first two times. So third time's a on that. <laughs> <laughs>